Okay, tonight we come to Job chapters 38 and 39. And it would be hard for me to adequately express how happy I am to be coming to these chapters. Because it has taken us 37 chapters to come to the place where finally the Lord is going to come and speak to Job. Now, of course, God was very conspicuous in the beginning parts of the book of Job. In chapter 1, we were introduced to this blameless and upright man, Job, a man who was uh, an incredibly godly man, and so godly that God in heaven took note of him. But, but Satan sought to attack God and God's integrity by attacking Job and Job's integrity, and he acted as if the only reason why Job obeyed and honored God was because Job was virtually bribed with God's blessings. Well, in that whole conflict between God and Satan, behind that curtain that seems to separate heaven and earth, God gave Satan permission to take away many of Job's blessings to prove that Job served and honored God out of a whole heart. And when you take a look at all that was taken from Job, it's staggering. He lost his ten adult children, whom, of course, he loved and whom loved one another. He lost all of his wealth, and Job was an incredibly wealthy man, and his economic standing went from fabulously rich to terribly poor in a very, very short time, in one afternoon, as a matter of fact. Uh, He lost his servants. He lost his livestock. Those were the two ways that his wealth was mainly measured. Then in sort of a second round of attack, after Job still held to his integrity, he lost his health, and he was struck with very painful and and, and a depressing disease that came upon him. Then he lost the support of his wife, who at one time was a great support and comfort to him, but ended up cursing him and just telling him that he should curse God and die. He lost the support of his friends, because in the many chapters that followed Job chapters 1 and 2, all the way from chapter 3 to chapter 37, it's Job arguing back and forth with his friends. And basically, Job's friends accused him of some terrible, unconfessed sin that had brought all of the catastrophe upon him. Job insisted and held to his integrity that that was not the case. But his friends wouldn't believe him. In the analysis of Job's friends, it was all very simple. You reap what you sow as an absolute law an absolute law that can be easily perceived by man. And when they saw the catastrophe that came in Job's life, they said there's only one um, reason for such catastrophe, and it has to be some terrible sin in a person's life that would invite this catastrophe. But not only did Job lose the support of his friends, the worst thing of all that Job lost was his sense of the presence of God. Through that extended section, uh, Job chapter 3 through Job chapter 37, in those places where we hear Job speak, oftentimes it's an anguished cry, wondering where God is and why God won't answer him anymore. And this man Job, who at one time had enjoyed such intimate fellowship with God, in the agony of his trial, was put under an ocean of depression and grief, and he felt no answer was forthcoming from God. It was, of course, in almost an infinitely smaller way, like the experience that Jesus had on the cross when he, in the midst of his terrible suffering, cried out and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And just as Jesus felt utterly forsaken on the cross, again, in almost an infinitely smaller measure, but one that was real nonetheless, Job felt forsaken by God. And I would tell you that that was the greatest aspect of his trial. Now, after 37 long chapters of these men discussing it back and forth, of all the wisdom of Job, of all the wisdom of Eliphaz, of all the wisdom of Bildad, of all the wisdom of Zophar, and then finally, what we saw last week, those six painful chapters from Elihu, This young man who thought he had all the answers, he didn't have the answers. But if you remember, at the very end of Elihu's long-winded six chapters, he described the approach of a storm and how God was, was showing himself in the wind and the rain and the thunder and the lightning. And this approaching storm, which I believe was literally approaching them, Elihu said, this is like God, and God is showing himself in the midst of the storm. And I would suggest that, that Elihu didn't know how accurately he spoke. 
Because even though in those closing verses of chapter 37, he told Job, God is too distant. You you can't reach him. You can't talk to him. What Elihu did not know was that God was in that very storm approaching Job and his friends. And so now, after a long wait, God speaks. Job 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Out of the whirlwind, Elihu saw this approaching storm, and he didn't know how powerful and how accurate he was. And what God was doing is coming on this whirlwind to come and settle the dispute. Because what we have is a huge argument, don't we, between Job and his three, or we might say four friends by this time. And God will indeed settle this dispute, but he's going to do it his way. Now, how did Job want God to settle the dispute? Very plainly, Job wanted God to settle the dispute by coming down and saying, Job, you're right, and all your friends are wrong. And let me explain to you the reason why all this catastrophe came in your life. How did Job's friends want God to, to, to settle the issue? Well, Job's friends wanted God to prove that they were right and to make Job recognize his error. You know what I think is wonderful about this when God appears? God will not satisfy any one of those expectations. He's not coming down to prove Job right, primarily. He's not coming down to prove the friends right. God did not obviously answer Job's questions. This is what I want you to understand. Now, you're going to see this tonight in chapters 38 and 39, and you're going to see it next week when we get into chapters uh, 40, 41 and 42, the end of the book. But Job is crying out to God, why, why, why? And God appears at the end of the book, and you know what? He doesn't tell him. God doesn't tell him. I want you to notice it tonight. I want you to look. God is not going to answer Job's question. Now, it says here in verse 1, the Lord answered Job. Notice, he's talking to Job. He did not immediately or directly answer Job's friends. Not the older friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and not the young friend, Elihu. No, God answered Job. Now, let me remind you of something. Perhaps this is because Job was the only person in this whole drama to cry out to the Lord. Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, Elihu, they talk to Job a lot with a lot of eloquence, but only Job cries out to God and the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. You know, repeatedly, the whirlwind is associated with the divine presence. You think about a whirlwind, a swirling storm with winds going everywhere and things being picked up and driven around. It has a powerful, unmanageable nature that reflects the nature of God. God is like a tornado that can't be controlled or opposed. And so we're not surprised. We're not surprised that God brought Elijah into heaven by a heavenly whirlwind. We're not surprised that Psalm 77 and Nahum chapter 1 tell us that God's presence is in the whirlwind. We're not surprised that Isaiah 66 and Jeremiah 4 and Jeremiah 23 tell us that God's coming is like a whirlwind. And we're not surprised that God appears appeared to Ezekiel in a whirlwind in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 4. I want you to notice something else, too. Job's calamities began with a wind, with a wind that knocked down the home where his ten children were gathered together for a celebratory dinner. The the Lord knew that storm was going to happen, and now God is in this storm. Verse 2. This is what God's going to say. Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Now, I think it's fair for us to ask a question. When God says, who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Who is he speaking to? It might have been mainly directed to Elihu, right? Who just finished his six chapters of droning on and on about the situation. It may be that he's speaking to all of Job's friends. It may be that he's speaking to Job as well. Yet I would say that all the characters in the drama did darken counsel by words without knowledge. Each one of them. Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, Elihu, and Job himself, each one of them spoke 
without accurate knowledge of what the reader knows from Job chapters 1 and 2, right? You see, they all hope they know what's going on, but they don't. We know because we read Job chapters 1 and 2, but they don't know. Now, by the way, I would say that we should not think that God expected them to know something that they could not know. Rather, I think this is it. God expected them to appreciate that there were aspects to the matter that they could not know. They were known to God, but hidden to man. And these aspects made sense of what seemed to make no sense. Listen, remember many times throughout our study through the book of Job, I've talked about this curtain that divides heaven and earth. And there can be spiritual dynamics and things going on behind that curtain in the heavenly realm that we can't see and we can't understand. Can I just tell you, God doesn't expect you to know those things. God doesn't condemn you for not knowing what happens behind that curtain. How could you know? But what God does is he expects you to say this. God expects you to say, there may very well be things happening behind that heavenly curtain that bear direct relation to what I'm experiencing, and I can't see them. God doesn't expect you to know them, but he expects you to know that they are there. And so he says, who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? And then verse three, now prepare yourself like a man. You know, I have this all pictured in my mind. God blowing at Job in the storm, blowing him over. Prepare yourself like a man. Now you see, Job had previously complained that God was battling against him in a great contest. Do you remember some of those passages where he felt like God was like a warrior fighting against him? That God was like an archer shooting arrows at him? And we might say that Job, without knowledge, without knowing it, was really battling against Satan. Now, God says, Forget about all that Satan battle. Now let's you and I wrestle. God challenged him, prepare yourself like a man. Verse three, I will question you and you shall answer me. Now again, isn't this fascinating? What was Job's great frustration through the prior chapters? Job's great frustration was that God would not answer him, right? God, where are the answers? And what did God do when he came to him? God turned the matter around and he told Job that before he would answer questions for Job, Job had some questions that he had to answer before God. Now, I just want you to push the pause button right now because we're going to get into these questions in chapters 38 and 39. But I want you to just tell you something about the questions that we're going to read through in these two chapters. The questions that he's going to ask Job are unanswerable. There's no way that he could answer him. It's not like God is going to stand before Job and say, okay, now, Job, what's two plus two? It's not like that. He's going to ask him unanswerable questions. They're not questions meant to to actually get an answer from Job. What the questions are meant to show is that Job had no place to demand an answer from God. Yet, Please listen, because I think this is very important. This is a big change in my own view of this text from ways that I had previously seen it before in previous times that I had talked to. Mostly I had seen God's encounter with Job, and especially in chapters 38 and 39, as mostly a rebuke. Job, how dare you question me like this? Now let me tell you a thing or two, Mr. Job, you know, and on and on like that. I don't see it that way anymore. I think this appearance of God to Job was not primarily a rebuke. The greatest thing that God brought to Job was not answers, because he had none for him. Let's be honest. You know what God brought to Job? Himself. God was there now, right? God was there speaking with Job, interacting with Job. God was there in his presence. You see, Job's greatest agony was that he felt that God had abandoned him. And now he knew that he was not abandoned. Now look, like any true revelation of God, there were plenty of elements in this that would make Job feel small before the greatness of God. Didn't it happen many times like that with Jesus and the disciples? Jesus would display his greatness to the disciples, and they were so happy that they were there with Jesus in his presence. But at the very same time, they were afraid of the presence of Jesus. And so here in the midst of it all, 
Job has this great sense that he is small and God is big, yet it could not take away from the unbelievable comfort that Job felt simply in once again being in the conscience presence of God. Right? That's what he agonized over for so long. God, where are you? And now God says, here I am. I wanted to tell you how I picture this in my mind. I picture this as God questions Job in chapters 38 and 39. As God shows Job how small he is and how little he knows and how great God is. You know how I picture Job in the midst of this? Not going like this. Oh, God, no. Oh, you're so mighty. Oh, I don't picture that. At all. I picture a great big smile on Job's face. It's like, yeah, I'm small and God's big, but God's with me again. God's here. I'm no longer separate from him. God did appropriately humble Job and bring him to repentance, as we're going to see. Yet I believe that Job smiled as a child who longs for the return of his long-gone father. And he's waiting for, oh, Daddy, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? And when Daddy comes home, Daddy has to discipline the child for a few small things, right? For a few small things, he has to discipline the child. But the child is so happy to have daddy home again that he just doesn't even care about the discipline. He, he takes whatever small discipline he has to receive, even with a great big smile on his face, because nothing can eclipse the fact that daddy is back home. And that's how Job feels. You see, I think it's really, really interesting. That what sets apart these speeches from the other speeches in the book of Job is primarily is that is the Lord God himself who speaks them. I just want to emphasize the point to you before we get into verse four, that what really met Job's needs here was not the answers that God would give him, because honestly, God gave him very little in terms of answers. What answered Job's needs was the presence of God himself. Well, here we go. Job chapter 38, verse 4. Tell me, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Isn't that an unbelievable question to begin with with Job? Verse 4, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Um, God, I didn't exist. Isn't this interesting? Again, the purpose isn't for Job to have an intellectual exchange with God. That's not the purpose of it at all. This is the feeling here. I look at God as being like this great father to Job with his arm around his son. And now he's going to show him, son, I want you to see the glory of this universe. I want you to see how big and how glorious it is. And I want you to understand how small you are in comparison to all I am and all that I've created. And so the intention of the question that God asked Job is obvious. Job was nowhere to be found when God laid the foundations of the earth. God was ancient in his power and his wisdom and in his might. And Job could never be considered to be on the same level as God. You see, God was essentially saying to Job, Job, if you can answer these things, then you are fit to question me. If you can't answer these things, th then you really don't have a place to be demanding answers from me. And Job was overwhelmed by all of this. You see, these questions also serve the purpose of reminding Job that there were many things that he did not know. Sometimes, isn't it what troubles us so much is an overconfident attitude that we think we know what's going on around us? Oh, Lord, I, I don't know what you're doing. Let, let's just say a man's having trouble in his business, okay? Lord, I just don't know what's going on in my business, Oh, everything else is okay. You know, this area of my life, that area of my life. But it's just my business. I don't know what's going on there. And it's as if God was showing Job. You know what, Job? It's not just your business that you're having a hard time with. There's a lot of stuff you don't know anything about. Let, let, let's just remind ourselves of that. And again, we, we see from verse 4, who indeed did lay the foundations of the earth? Well, God himself. It didn't just happen. He's the creator of heaven and earth. 
Now in verse 5, who determined its measurements? And then in verse 6, to what were its foundations fastened? Job was not present at the creation of the world, so he had no understanding of the measurements or the foundation of the earth. Yet the earth indeed does have measurements. The, the earth does indeed have foundations. It's just that Job didn't know them. It's as if God's saying, Job, do you know why I made the, the world this big and not this big or not this big? Do you know why? I don't know why, God. I just know that you did. And then look at what it says in verse 7. Or, or were you around when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Do you know what that tells us? Very interesting. Something we don't know from any other place in the Bible. This tells us that angelic beings, here called morning stars and sons of God, that angelic beings did in fact witness the creation of the earth and they rejoiced at the glory of power, and wisdom of God in the creation. When did God create the angelic beings? I don't know. It must have been before he created the earth because they saw the creation of the earth and they sang for joy when God created the heaven and the earth. Now, by the way, he also says this. God says that all the sons of God shouted for joy. By the way, I take from that that Lucifer fell from his position as the anointed cherub who covers sometime after God created the earth. Because here it says that all the angelic beings were singing God's praises at creation. Job, do you know this? No, I don't know it. Well, now starting at verse 8. Job, do you know the boundaries of the sea? Look here, verse 8. Or, or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst forth and issued from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and the thick darkness its swaddling band? When I fixed my limit for it and set bars and doors? When I said, this far you may come, but no farther, and here your proud waves must stop? Now again, he asks him, as in verse 8, who shut in the sea with doors when it burst forth? This is probably a reference to what the book of Genesis tells us was God's work of creation on the second day when God divided the waters and separated the land from the sea. Job wasn't around when God did that, and therefore he had no idea how it was done. But there was a time when God said in the creation of the world, as it says in verse 11, God said, this far you may come, but no farther, and now your proud waves must stop. Job had no understanding of how God set the boundaries for the sea. He knew that those boundaries existed, but he couldn't explain why or, or why exactly or how they were set. And going on here now, verse 12, do you understand the nature of the earth? Look here, starting at verse 12. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be taken, shaken out of it? It takes on form like clay under a seal and stands out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld and the upraised arm is broken. Have you entered the springs of the sea or have you walked in search of the depths? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the doors of the shadow of death? Have you comprehended the breadth of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Well, again, just like it says in verse 12, have you commanded the morning since your days began? Well, that's a wonderful question for God to ask Job. Now, Job, just answer me this question. Have you made morning come a single day in your life? Job, have you ever commanded the sun to come up? Have you ever said, well, you know what? I don't want the sun to come up at 6 o'clock this morning. I'd really like the sun to come up at 5 o'clock this morning. Sun, you're out there at 5 o'clock. Come up! It just doesn't work, does it? Job, can you do this? Now, again, this is what I want you to see. I used to believe that God was more angry with Job than I see it now in these chapters. But don't you see? These questions, again, I hope I'm using a reverent word here. These questions are almost playful. They are. It's like, Job, come on. C can you make the sun come up in the morning? I, I believe that God, in some measure, is not trying to, you know, beat his chest and terrify Job with his great power and humble him low. Honestly, I think that God is having some, some, having some fun with Job. Now, I don't want to act like this is a ha-ha-ha light party or something like that. Not at all. But what I want you to see is this is not a heavy condemning thing of God. God, in an almost playful way, is showing Job how small he is and how great God is and how Job just needs to put things in perspective. 
as he says there in verse 16, have you entered the springs of the sea? And you know what I think is funny about that? Job probably didn't even know that there were springs of the sea, much less enter them. He doesn't know these hidden things, such as the gates of death or the breadth of the earth. They're unknown to him. So Job is just, I, I picture Job in the midst of smiling back at God or however God represented himself to Job saying, nope, I don't know, God. Tell me more. Tell me more. Verse 19, do you comprehend the nature of light and darkness in the sky? Here, starting at verse 19, where is the way to the dwelling of light and darkness? Where is its place that you may take it to its territory, that you may know the paths to its home? Do you know it because you were born then or because the number of your days is great? Have you entered the treasury of snow or have you seen the treasury of hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? By the, what way light is diffused or the east wind scattered over the earth? You see, when he asks in verse 19, where is the way to the dwelling of light? It was as if God asked, Job, do you know where light comes from? Do you know its nature and its source? And he says, verse 21, do, do you know it because you were born then or because the number of your days is great? Now, Job, I know that you feel like you're old and wise, but are you old enough and wise enough to know these things that I'm asking you about? Come on now, Job, speak up at any time. You're an old and wise man. But Job has no answers. He's not supposed to. He's just supposed to be amazed with the wisdom of God. And again, may I say again, comforted by the very presence of God. Again, I can't get away from this picture of Job being with God and more than anything, more than be astounded by the great majesty of God, Job is comforted by the mere presence of God. But again, verse 22, he goes on and he says, Have you seen the treasury of hail of which I have reserved for the time of trouble for the day of battle and war? You know, on several spectacular occasions in the biblical record, God used, and by the way, he will use in the future, hail, as bombs and missiles from heaven against those who are hostile to him and his people. You can find several occasions in the Old Testament where God would basically fight a war with bombs from the air before airplanes were ever discovered and his bombs were hail and snow and such. You can see it uh, as a tool of God's judgment against Egypt, against the Canaanites, against apostate Israel, against Gog and Magog, and against a rebellious earth in the Great Tribulation. Going on, verse 25, Job, do you understand the nature of rain and its effects? He says, who has divided a channel for the overflowing water or a path for the thunderbolt to cause it to rain on a land where there is no one, a wilderness where there is no man to satisfy the desolate waste and to cause to spring forth the growth of tender grass. Has the rain a father or has... Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb comes the ice and the frost of heaven? Who gives it birth? The waters harden like stone and the surface of the deep is frozen. Now again, he says here, verse 25, who has divided a channel for the overflowing water. In the previous section, God spoke of his wisdom in the management and use of snow and hail. Now God speaks of his ability to engineer a drainage system and a channel for the overflowing water. And then he says in verse 28, has the rain a father or who has begotten the drops of dew? Listen, who makes it rain anyway? Now, you know, we say, well, it's due to weathered patterns and we know the rain cycle and the weather cycle and the, the, the scientists can predict and the meteorologists stand before their charts and they tell you rain here, snow here. We know this weather front's coming in. Well, it's fine. They can tell you what's going to happen with some reasonable uh, measure of certainty, but they don't make it happen. The, who's the father of the rain? Well, it's God himself. You see, God showed Job that man was completely unable to cause rain. Charles Spurgeon was preaching a great sermon on this text, and he took this idea and he likened rain to the grace of God. And he said, listen, man can't make it rain, neither can man make God pour out his grace. This is what he said, it's great. He said, if both houses of parliament were to be called together and the queen were to sit upon her throne of state, and they were unanimously to pass an act ordering the rain to fall, he that sits in the heavens would laugh. The Lord would hold them in derision. For the key of the rain is in no hand except that of Jehovah. 
It is exactly so with the grace of God. You and I cannot command it. The presence of the most holy men in our midst would not of itself bring it. The most earnest preaching, the most scriptural doctrine, the most faithful obedience to ordinances would not make it necessary that we should receive grace. God must give it. He's an absolute sovereign, and we are entirely dependent upon him. Well, that's true, isn't it? God masters the reign, and he also masters his own grace. Now, you see, he first talks to him about, you know, the rain and the sky and the this, and then he's going to go even further out, verse 31, about the constellations. He says, can you bind the cluster of the Pleiades or loose the belt of Orion? Can you bring out Maseroth in its season or can you guide the great bear with its cubs? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you set their dominion over the earth? You, you see here, He's talking to Job about the constellations that fill the night sky. And I find it very interesting. God did not only challenge Job on his lack of knowledge, right? But he also challenged Job on his lack of might and greatness in comparison to God. He didn't say, do you know what uh, the Pleiades and the belt of Orion are? He said, can you do anything with them? And Job says, no. No, I reach as far as I can, and I can't reach them. I can't do anything with them. But you see, obviously Job was not able to manage or master or change any of the stars in the sky or the constellations that fill the night. But God could. You see, with these high, and might I say almost outrageous examples of what Job could not do, we should remember that God's purpose was not to humiliate Job. Now, I have to say, I used to think that that was sort of God's purpose here, to put Job in his place. Well, in a way, but not really. We should remember that his purpose was not to humiliate Job. Instead, as I said before, I see God here as almost playful in making the point that God knows everything and can do everything, and Job can't. Can you bring out the Maseroth in its season? Most people think that the Maseroth there is a reference to the Zodiac and the constellations that make that up. Job, do you have any, do you have any power over that? No, sorry, God, I don't. And then in verse 33, he says, do you know the ordinances of heaven? As you like many people in the ancient world, Job probably understood the arrangement, the patterns and the starry sky, but he couldn't even begin to explain the natural forces which governed this arrangement. You don't know the ordinances of the heavens. And going on now to verse 34, Job, do you know anything about the clouds, the weather and the human mind? He says in verse 34, can you lift up your voice to the clouds that an abundance of water may cover you? Can you send out lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the mind or who has given understanding to the heart? Who can number the clouds by wisdom or who can pour out the bottles of heaven when the dust hardens and clumps and the clods cling together? Verse 34, can you lift up your voice to the clouds? You see, Job was not only powerless over the starry sky and its constellations, he was also powerless over the clouds and the lightnings. He was powerless over natural phenomenon, both those close to him and those far from him. But then in verse 36, God gets even more pointed. He says, who's put wisdom in the mind? Or who's given understanding to the heart? Job knew that man had intelligence and wisdom and that this intelligence must have been given by an intelligent designer. You see, like all men, Job's intellectual capacity was not the result of, of random chance or mysterious processes. It was designed by a great designer. You know, as I look at this chapter of the book of Job, I think it's amazing to consider that modern science has made some impressive progress in understanding or answering some of the questions that God sent to Job. I mean, if God were to ask some of these questions to our top scientists, some of them would have some answers. You, you see, modern science today understands much more about the measurements of the earth, right? And didn't God ask Job, what are the measurements of the earth? Modern science understands much more about the gravitational forces that keeps the earth suspended. And God asked Job about that. Modern science knows much more about the meteorological and the hydrological systems of the earth. And God asked Job about that. 
Modern science knows much more about the nature of light, and God asked Job about that. But nobody can think for a moment that modern science can come close to answering all of these questions that God posed to Job. You know, when I think about the great increase in scientific knowledge over the past 100 or 200, if you want to go all the way back to the Enlightenment, all the way since that time, when you think about this increased knowledge, it's a wonderful and a glorious thing. And we as believers, we should be applauding scientific investigation. It is a wonderful fulfillment of our capabilities as creatures made in the image of God, that that we can investigate and better understand the natural world. You know what passage from the scriptures I like best about that? Uh, Proverbs 25.2 says this, It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings is to search out a matter. And I see scientists as those who take that glory of kings very seriously, and they say, I'm going to search out a matter. I'm going to try to figure out why this happens and under what natural principles and use the scientific method, and it's all wonderful. Yet, with all this increased knowledge, as wonderful and as glorious as it is, mankind is really not much closer at all to answering these questions that God posed to Job. Oh, we filled in a few small details around the edges, but there's still a vast gap between the knowledge and wisdom of man and the knowledge and wisdom of God. We might say that God's approach to Job in this section undercuts a lot of modern thinking. You see, enlightenment thinking really coming forth from the 18th century, it freed man from much superstition but it also exalted man's reason, man's wisdom as the measure of truth. And it can be observed that God very eloquently destroys this overconfidence in human wisdom in this presentation to Job. It makes us ask this question, what does man, with all of his reason, with all of his wisdom, really know about the world? How much do human beings know with all their scientific knowledge and inquiry, with all the doctors and PhDs and universities and research institutions, and again, God bless them for doing what they do, but with all their work that they do, how much do they know of what could possibly be known? Very, very little. Man does not know actually very much and therefore must pursue knowledge with a humble trust in the God who does know everything. Well, let's keep going here. Uh, Verse 39, where actually there's going to be a shift in focus. Many people think that the chapter division was made very poorly here. They think that the new chapter should begin at verse 39 instead of beginning where it does. And the reason is this. Previously in the chapter when God was playing question and answer with Job, he was talking about all these things in the natural world, you know, the, the, the... the stars, the wind, the storms, all the rest of it. Now, starting in verse 39, he's going to start talking about the animal kingdom. Do you know about this? And again, I think it's wonderful. Can't you just see Job and God, you know, watching, you know, the animal channel or, you know, Discovery Channel together? You know, let's watch the nature program together, Job, and see how little you know about this as well. So God turns on the the animal channel here for him at verse 39. Can you hunt prey for the lion? Or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lurk in their lairs to lie in wait? Who provides food for the raven when its young ones cry to God and wander about for lack of food? See, in verse 39 it tells us, Can you hunt prey for the lion? In this speech to Job, God moved from the distant expanse of the constellations down to the clouds, down to the human mind, and now down further still to simple animal instincts such as the ability to hunt prey for the lion. Job couldn't do this. Job, uh, can you go out and get the lion some food? Job says, I can't do that. The lion can do that, but I can't do it. Job cannot even do this. And therefore, it's presumptuous for him to demand answers from God the way that he did. Verse 41, who provides food for the raven? Well, we know that God provides food for the birds, don't we? It would be impossible for Job or any other man to do so. Could you imagine if God made it your job? Okay, I want you to go out and feed all the birds here in this town. 
Go, just go feed them. <laughs> well, where would I begin? It's an impossible job. And God says, okay, well, then don't worry about it. I'll do it. But again, we notice God is very big and we aren't. And again, he, he's just going to start picking out some creatures at random. Now take a look at, at chapter 39, verse 1. God's just going to continue on. D- do you know the time when the young, when the wild mountain goats bear young? Or can you mark when the deer gives birth? Can you number the months that they fulfill? Or do you know the time when they bear young? They bow down, they bring forth their young, they deliver their offspring, their young ones are healthy, they grow strong with grain, they depart and do not return from them. Again, I think this is very interesting. Do you see what God asked in verse 1? Now, Job, do, do you know the time when the wild mountain goats bear their young? What God is doing in this is he keeps bringing the level of knowledge down, 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 down for Job. Because this is something that Job could quite conceivably know, right? C- couldn't Job, just, just with his own observation, say, you know what, I'm really curious about when those wild mountain goats bear their young. I'm going to follow them around for a couple months and find out when that is. Job, through his own little scientific investigation, could figure that out. Yet here it is, Job doesn't even know that. Even this relatively low level of knowledge is beyond Job. Now look, Even though Job didn't know these principles of the natural order, at the same time, he had to admit that the natural order all worked pretty good, right? Job, do do you know this about the stars? Do you know this about the weather? Do you know this about the sea? Do you know this about the lions? Do you know this about the wild mountain goats? And what's Job saying? No, 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 no. And then God says, you know, Job, um, wouldn't you agree that this whole thing, even though you don't have a clue about it, it seems to work pretty good? Yeah, you know, God, I got to say, it does, it seems to work pretty good. You see, all these questions that, that, that brought Job, uh, th- this encounter before God, it, it exposed Job to another truth. It's as if Job should say this, I see that this world made by God operates with remarkable order and wisdom. Now, can I deny his wisdom? in the governing of all things, just because there's things in my life that I don't understand? In other words, if I can trust God to run the universe okay, I think I can trust him to run my own life okay, even though I don't understand it. Verse 3, they bow down and they bring forth their young. Listen, this is how it works, Job. There's an arrangement of growth and maturity for the natural order. Job, did you make this design? No, I didn't. Job doesn't even understand much about it. And then verse 8, let's talk about the wild donkey, should we not? (laughs) Who set the wild donkey free? Who loosed the bonds of the onager? Whose home I have made the wilderness and the barren land his dwelling? He scorns the tumult of the city. He does not heed the shouts of the driver. The range of the mountains is his pasture and he searches after every green thing. Isn't that a great question? Verse 5, hey, Joe, who set the wild donkey free? I don't know. Job doesn't have any understanding of these facts of nature. He has even less power over the animals. These things belong to God and not to Job. By the way, in verse uh, 5, where it talks about the wild donkey, and then in the next line, the onager. The onager is another name for a wild donkey. And this is very interesting, because this is actually one of the most admired animals of the Old Testament. Because the wild donkey was wild. You couldn't tame it. It it would just do whatever it wanted to. And so, example, when when the angel declared that Ishmael, the son of Hagar, would be a wild donkey of a man, actually it was a compliment. It was like, listen, this is a man going to be so independent, nobody can control him. The, the, The creature was admired for both its freedom and its ability to survive in the very harshest of conditions. And that's sort of indicated there in verse 8. The range of the mountains is his pasture, and he searches after every greed thing. Listen, God knew how the wild donkey lived and was provided for. Job did not. You know what I think is interesting about this? Again, God's just having a little bit of fun with Job, I think, in a way. Isn't the wild donkey a funny animal? Because of this. It's so fiercely independent. It says, you will not tame me. But it's not mighty like a lion or a tiger, right? 
It's not like the wild donkey can defend himself and needs protection from no one. Actually, they're fairly vulnerable animals. But at the same time, it's fiercely independent. It's a mystery in the animal kingdom. But Job can't figure that out. Well, maybe he should trust that God knows what's going on in the other areas. Verse 9. Again, God flips the channel on the animal, you know, channel. Here's another one. The wild ox. Verse 9. Will the wild ox be willing to serve you? Will he be, will he bed by your manger? Can you bind the wild ox in the furrow with ropes? Or will he plow the valleys behind you? Will you trust him because his strength is great? Or will you leave your labor to him? Will you trust him to bring home your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? Now, again, nobody's going to deny that Job is smarter than a wild ox. Yet would the wild ox serve him? No. Job, you lack both in wisdom and understanding the wild ox, but you can't master him either. Now, by the way, the New King James translates this wild ox. Do you know how the Old King James translates this? Unicorn. Both of them are bad translations. The animal is actually a fearsome, mighty, and extinct animal known as an aurochs. This is how it's spelled. A-U-R-O-C-H-S. Aurochs. I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. I really don't know. A-U-R-O-C-H-S. And that is the beast that's in question here. By the way, we have historical records of this beast, which finally came extinct, we believe, somewhere around the year 1627. Because it seems that that was the last time one of these is mentioned in some kind of killing or fighting. Somewhere around that time in the 17th century, this animal was made extinct. But this was an enormous animal and the most powerful of all the hoofed beasts. And it was exceeded in size only by the hippopotamus and the elephant. It was the standard symbol of strength in the Old Testament being mentioned nine times. And so look, you have this great, fearsome, hoofed, mighty animal. And God has fun with Job again. Look at what he says in verse 10. Can you bind the wild ox in the furrow with ropes? Do you know what that means? Job, can you hook up a plow to a wild ox and use him? Now I want you to get this picture in mind. Picture a guy hooking up a plow to a big, nasty rhinoceros, right? It's a ridiculous picture. But God's like, well, Job, can you do that with the wild ox? Can you master him enough to where you can hitch up a plow to him and use him in your farming? No, it wouldn't work. And that's the same picture that God's trying to paint for Job. Well, now, going on here, we flip the channel again on Animal Planet or whatever you want to call it. Verse 13, he says, uh, the, the wings of the ostrich wave proudly. But her wings and pinions are like the kindly storks. For she leaves her eggs in the ground and warms them in the dust. She forgets that a foot may crush them or that a wild beast may break them. She treats her young harshly, although they were not hers, as though they were not hers. Her labor is in vain without concern because God has deprived her of wisdom and did not endow her with understanding when she lifts herself on high and scorns the horse and its rider. Now, can you picture an ostrich proudly waving its wings with the flightless bird? It can't do anything. And it's just as if God's asking Job, now, Job, can you explain why a bird that can't fly has wings? Or you, can you explain why, why it has wings at all or, or why a creature with wings can't fly? It's a silly bird. Why is it? Because God made it so. I mean, you look at an ostrich and you just kind of go, well, that's ridiculous. And that's what God wants Job to see here. As a matter of fact, not only is it ridiculous, it's stupid. God has deprived her of wisdom. Apparently, ostriches are very strange in their conduct. I'm no expert on ostrich conduct. I only know what I read in the commentaries and such. To tell you the truth, I'm not all that interested in ostriches. But apparently, they're somewhat foolish animals. And it's a wonderful and strange example that he throws out before Job. And again, I want you to see that not only is God teaching Job, but through the obvious humor in these examples, he's entertaining him. I see such a loving, fatherly care of Job that God has towards him in this passage. 
Again, I used to see it in much more harsh terms, as if God was, you know, really, hey, Job, you step into my office right now. I got a few things to say to you, you know, and and starts going down the list, you know. And now I see this as having much more of a pleasant experience for Job. I, I like what one commentator named Mason says. He says as if God is saying this to Job, get used to my absurdity. And live by faith rather than by sight. Be like the ostrich. Although you cannot fly, you can still flap your wings joyfully. Well, do it, Job. Going on here, verse 19. Have you given the horse strength? Have you clothed his neck with thunder? Can you frighten him like a locust? His majestic snorting strikes terror. He paws in the valley and rejoices in his strength. He gallops in the clash of arms. He mocks at fear and is not frightened, nor does he turn back from the sword. The quiver rattles against him, the glistening spear and javelin. He devours the distance with fierceness and rage. Nor does he come to a halt because the trumpet has sounded. At the blast of the trumpet, he says, Aha! He smells the battle from afar, the thunder of captains and shouting. Now listen, it's not all, you know, smiles and chuckles with God and Job. I mean, yes, he uses the ridiculous example of the wild ox. He uses the ridiculous example of the ostrich. But now he says, Job, I want to show you the war horse. Look at this mighty horse in battle and what a warrior nature this horse has and how it cannot be stopped and nobody can tame him and what a fearsome creature it is job did you make him like this and job just goes whoa look at the greatness of this horse verse 19 have you given the horse strength like many people job could be impressed with the majestic strength of a horse yet he had no strength to give to the horse That strength came from God and not from Job or any other man. Job, can you make an animal like that? If you could make him, could you control him? Even the most well-broken and best-trained horse might break from the restraints of the most skilled rider. Can you really control it? Look at it there in verse 22. He mocks at fear and he's not frightened, nor does he turn back from the sword. Job, you can give no explanation for the warrior nature of the horse, which operates against reason and the self-interest of the horse. Think about it. Can you see that mighty warrior horse in battle? You ever think, what's in it for the horse? I mean, if the horse, if the horse had any brains, so to speak, the horse would say, forget this. I'm at her. Let these people fight the battle. I'm staying out of this. But the horse doesn't. The well-trained war horse gets into it, and he fights with a passion that is totally inexplainable by human reason. Verse 26. Does the hawk fly by your wisdom? and spread its wings toward the south? Does the eagle mount up at your command and make its nest on high? On the rocks it dwells and resides, on the crag of the rock and the stronghold. From there it spies out the prey, its eyes observe from afar, its young ones suck up blood, and where the slain are, there it is. Now in verse 26, God says, Does the hawk fly by your wisdom. You see, after considering many land animals and the wisdom surrounding them, now God turns to a majestic bird, the hawk. Job, can you explain? Or much less, can you create the mechanics of flight for this bird? It's again, just a wonderful idea that God wanted Job to be astonished by the wildness of it all. Even allowing for the fact that God, in the book of Genesis, gave man dominion over... Listen, remember that from Genesis chapter 1? That God gave man dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Even with dominion over all of these, man did not make or sustain these great animals. Now... If mankind has so little authority over nature, could Job actually expect to have more control over the mysterious events of his life? No, Job, you're not in control. I like what it says there in verse 27. Does the eagle mount up at your command? Job was equally powerless to explain the eagle in its ways, much less to command it. 
So again, I want to remind you here, as we come to the close of this chapter, it might seem at first that God was being harsh with Job. But when you compare what God has to say to Job with what we're going to see next week with what God had to say to Job's companions, I want you to see this is much, much different than what Job's companions thought God was going to say to him, right? Isn't this amazing? God did not come to Job as a judge. He did not come to Job as a policeman. He came to Job as a teacher, a loving, winsome, powerful, vivid, humorous teacher. God was once again with Job in his proper relation, right? God wasn't buddy-buddy, pally-pally with Job. God was still God and Job was still Job, but God was with him again, and that was enough for Job. Let me read you this quote from one of the better commentators on the book of Job, a guy named Smick. He says, What these speeches do not contain is almost as important as what they do. The speeches do not reverse the Lord's judgment in the prologue about Job. Satan was wrong in impugning Job's inner reasons for being righteous, and the friends were wrong about Job's outward conduct as a reason for his suffering. Job did not get the bill of indictment or verdict of innocence that he wanted, but neither was he humiliated with a list of sins he had committed for which he was being punished. I mean, could you imagine if it was different from that? As if God came down from heaven, he came in the whirlwind, and he spoke to Job, and he said, Hey, Job, you know that stuff about being blameless and upright? I take it all back. That's not true, is it? God didn't do anything of the kind. I find it interesting that God never gave Job any reasons for his long ordeal of suffering. Can you find any of that in the chapters we just read? Does God say anything like, well, you see, Job, there was this contest between me and Satan, and Satan challenged your honor and my honor, and I felt that we had to answer that challenge, and I had a lot of faith in you, Job, and how I could sustain you, on and on and on and on. Did God say anything like that? Not one bit. No. It is true that God's answers to Job were not logical, that they were not primarily theological. It's not the same as saying that God gave Job no answer. God brought Job an answer. And you know what the answer was? Himself. His own presence. That was enough for Job. Well, God isn't finished. Next week, as we get together for our last study in the book of Job, we're going to see what God has to say to Job and what God does in restoring Job. It's a beautiful cap on the end of the passage. But let me just remind you and leave you with this. This is indeed a powerful, powerful passage to consider in the whole context of suffering. Because many, many times the sufferer feels that what they most need are answers, right? Isn't that what many suffering people feel? Isn't that what many suffering people despair of? I need answers. It needs to make sense. You know what? God showed Job in a very powerful way that far beyond his need for it to make sense, far beyond his need for answers, what he needed was the presence of God himself. And that is a truth that transfers to anybody's suffering. You, you may be listening to this tonight and feel yourself greatly afflicted and you wonder why. And there's something within you. It's human nature, I suppose. You're crying out that it has to make sense, that you have to be able to figure it out, that you have to get an answer somewhere. And let me just say that, that sometimes God fills us in. Sometimes God allows us to make sense of it. But God will allow us to go through at least a few times, if not more in our life, that position where he says, you know what? I'm going to be your answer. Not logic, not theology, but me, myself, God says, I will be your answer. Father, our prayer is that you would move us into a place of fellowship and communion with you to where we could accept that. And Father, I think of the great 
endurance and tenacity of Job, that he was able to endure through all of his sufferings, all of the sense that you had forsaken him and departed him until you brought your answer. And the answer was yourself, Lord. I pray, God, that you would grant us the same grace to endure through those times when you seem so distant. And Lord, you have your purpose for allowing all of that. You have your purpose in all this majestic creation of the world that we don't understand. But we can also believe that you have your purpose in even withholding sometimes the sense of your presence from us. Help us to endure through it all to the end until you come to us as you came to Job. We pray this, Lord, tonight in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.